For if you refuse to send forth my people, behold, tomorrow I shall bring a locust swarm into your border. It will cover the surface of the earth so that, that one will not be able to see the earth and it will consume the remaining residue that was left to you by the hail and it will consume all the trees that grow for you from the field. They will fill your houses, the houses of all your servants and the houses of all Egypt, such as your fathers and your grandfathers have not seen from the day they came onto the earth until this day. And he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. Two broods of screaming cicadas will emerge this year for the first time in 221 years. You can't make this stuff up. Screaming flying cicadas will make an appearance coming back in a once-in-a-lifetime event. This is today's news. Did you hear what I just read you? Cicadas and locusts are not the same thing. But it's incredible to read this as we're reading Parsha Bo about this lo locust plague for the first time since the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. 19 and 13X1X, X111 will come out of the ground simultaneously after more than a decade of eating to transform into adults. Brood 13, last seen in 2007. Brood 19, which was last seen in 2011. That's your brood. That one's coming to Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri. And guess what? Shalomis in India, I mean, uh, Indiana and Illinois, you get to see both broods come about. Isn't the Torah cycle amazing? We're studying this, and I'm reading this news article about this plague of cicadas that's going to, hasn't been around for 221 years. Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about. Last week, we started with some, we, we talked about some questions. Big question, what was the purpose of the exodus, the plagues, the whole ordeal? And thankfully, I was so proud to be your rabbi, you got the answers right. We talked about them. What was part one? talked about that, why Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, especially in the sixth plague of boils. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to listen to Pharaoh's hard heart from last week. But the first reason for the exodus and the way it was done, you remember what it was? So that you will know that I am the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Let me remind you just how important that first part was to God in 10 different experiences. Exodus 6, I'll take you as my own people, I'll be your God, then you will know that I am the Lord. Exodus 7, and the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring Israel out. Exodus 7 again, this is what the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord with the staff in my hand, the water will turn to blood. Exodus 8, then he said, tomorrow may it be according to your word and all on that day, you may know there is none like the Lord our God. Again, Exodus 8, I will set apart the land of Goshen, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Exodus 9, for this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself and your servants, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Exodus 9, again, Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. That's a little bit of a twist. 
That's actually a full-on frontal attack on the gods of Egypt. A subcategory, still knowing, it's part of knowing that I am God, but a bit more particular because I'm not just God, I'm the God. Adon Olam, like over all of your false gods, the earth is mine and you will know that. He goes on in Exodus 10, that you may know that I am the Lord. He's saying this to Israel. You may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with Egyptians and what signs I've done, that you may know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Exodus 14 again, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. There are others, there are many others, but that is a lot of knowing, is it not? Because that's important. And I mentioned to you last week, Parsha Vieira covered seven of the plagues. We talked extensively about them and what was happening with Pharaoh's hard, strong, stubborn heart and the fact that God even chazaked it one time. Remember that word? Chazak. We need to make it a verb. Chazaked it. It's sort of like I rocked it, but I chazaked it. To make strong is that word. Now, the division of those seven plagues and these three this week that we're going to get is not arbitrary. There's a significant shift that we're going to see. We are in Parsha Bo. It starts in Exodus 10. And we pick up the last three plagues, locusts, darkness, and death of the firstborn. Big ones. I want you to notice a little shift because we talked a lot last week about Chazak and strengthening his heart and all these other things, but there was another word. Exodus 10 says, Vayomer Adonai Moshe, and God spoke to Moses saying, Bo al paro, go to Pharaoh, come to Pharaoh actually, for I have hichbadti et libo, I have hardened his heart. And his servants, by the way. Come to Pharaoh, for I have done this. In other words, I have dug Pharaoh's heart in. But I talked to you a lot about the purpose of God chazaking his heart. This is a different word. Hichbadti. You remember the other word I told you last week? Kabed. This is from Kabed. This means something different than God just made him strong so he could endure it. God dug his heart in. I have made his heart not just strong, not just able to endure, but supernaturally stubborn. God did this. Hichbadti. I have hardened it. In other words, it would seem at this point that Pharaoh was lost beyond the point of return, right? All decisions had been made by him and now there would be these supreme consequences and God gets very personal at this point. And the locust plague comes. I want to show you just how personal this is to Pharaoh. Of course, it affected everyone, but it's important that we need to connect this back to something that occurred. You remember the hail plague. Let me refresh your memory. Moses said to him, this is plague seven. As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will no longer be hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, Moses said, I know that you do not yet fear God. 
The Torah continues. Now the flax and the barley were ruined, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripened late. How did Moses know that Pharaoh does not yet fear God? Why didn't Pharaoh yet fear God? The Torah gives us this little hint right here. Some food had been destroyed. But you can imagine Pharaoh gathering his little team around him and saying, <laughs> Supreme God, he ruined the barley and the flax. The wheat and spelt are still coming. We're going to have plenty of food. This God, ah. And then the locusts bring total death. Why? Every plant, all the fruit that the hail had left, nothing green. The food is gone. Famine. That's why Pharaoh describes this plague as death. He says, Moses, please remove this death from me. His job was to protect his people. And God says, you think you, 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 think you are okay? These little bugs are going to take you out. And all the food is gone. But it's amazing to note, after the hail, before the locusts had actually come, they had been announced, but they hadn't come, God made Pharaoh's heart stubborn and his servant's heart. And yet, his servants were still capable of to coming to their senses and even to approach Pharaoh. Listen to me, this is important. Even though God had supernaturally hardened their hearts, Pharaoh and the servants, there was still free will. And the servants were able to come to their senses. And what did they do? They went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart had been made hard by God. So had theirs. And this incorrect assumption that if God hardens your heart, there's nothing you can do about it. The master of the universe, he cheated the system. He twisted the game. It's not fair. But that's not what happens. Because the very same servants whose hearts had been hardened... Fine, we got it. Their hearts are hard. The, pharaohs, the servants came to Pharaoh from the midst of their stubbornness, but before the locusts came, and here's what they said to him. How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is lost? Do you see my point? They are equally as hardened, supernaturally stubborn, dug in, and yet there is free will. There is a choice. We have changed our mind. We see it. This is the Lord. It doesn't mean that they served him. It doesn't mean that they liked him. But they knew him. His reputation was established. The goal had succeeded. And now they say to their boss, let the people go. And that, my friends, was the second great purpose of the Exodus. It was being realized. 
that God's people would be let go. The, and, and his servants, I said, to the, said to you this, I said this to you last week, these aren't the floor sweepers and the cooks and like the, the bathroom cleanup. His servants are his most trusted advisors who come to him and say, God, this, their God is real. Goal one, realized. Goal two, let the people go. Boss, please, do you not see it? Let them go. And one can't help but think of Romans 11 here. What happens, what does Paul talk about in Romans 11? A hardening, a partial hardening of the hearts of the Jewish people. I don't want you, brothers and sisters, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Thus, God hardens what he will harden for a purpose. And within it, there still remains the option and opportunity. And that was the servant's. And they took the opportunity. But Pharaoh? Nope. And God stays personal with him. The plague of darkness comes. Darkness. So what? Big deal. What's the big deal about darkness? Well, let me tell you how much Pharaoh understood the plague of darkness and what all of his people understood about the plague of darkness and why it was directed at Pharaoh. Darkness is the absence of light, that's easy. But it was much more than that because in the ancient Egyptian religion, Ra, you know the god Ra? He was indeed one of the most powerful and significant God's primarily known as the God of the sun and creation, often considered the king of the gods. And the prominence and power that Ra received as the sun god, the god of light in Egyptian mythology, you cannot, you cannot understate that. He was believed to travel across the sky in this solar chariot, solar boat, and through the underworld at night, and he represented the cycle of birth, death, rebirth. He was seen as a creator God, involved with the creation of life and the seasons, and most particularly in this age of Egyptian history, the Pharaoh was the personification of a God. Do you know which god in this particular history period of Egypt? Ra. So, Ra has gone dark. And Pharaoh, as Ra, has been defeated soundly, finally, conclusively, and sits in the dark, powerless to overcome it. And all the people saw it. I guess literally they didn't see it because they were in the dark, but you understand the point. This is it, right? This is it. This is the takedown. Knockout. Pharaoh, got it. Get the message. But it's not done because there's one more. The, the biggie. The big one is coming. And many, many, many people will die. Which brings up the second great criticism that I brought forth to you last week, why? Why would a loving God, 
right? Loving God accomplishes purposes through death and destruction. Why did it have to be this way? God could have just picked him up and swept him out. There didn't have to be a tenth one and kill all those people. The critic, this is why I stay away from that God stuff. Always about judgment and anger. Why? Well, last week I promised you I would bring a descriptive word into our discussion. I decided to bring two. I'm giving you two words, actually, both providing an answer to the why of God's action. You ready? Complicit and complacent. You know those words? They have different meanings. They sound a lot alike. Complicit and complacent. That means the choice... They, the people, are equally as stubborn and hard-hearted. But let me back up just briefly. It is an established fact in Jewish thought that the plagues were a judgment that is inescapable. Do you know why? They had to be. God made that promise to to Abraham in Genesis 15. God's actually to Abram. That's how far back it goes. Know for certain that your descendants, Avram, will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they serve. You hear that? A promise in the covenant. I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. The plagues were part of that judgment. We could suggest, and Judaism has commentators that do, that that was the only point of the plagues was just to judge Egypt. But why judgment on innocent people? Because they weren't innocent. They were complicit. There there was a nation of people, millions of people, being held in captivity. Slaves worked, treated badly, abused, killed, And the Egyptian people were part of that culture. And in their not-so-distant past, maybe not this generation of Egyptians, but Egyptians had taken Israelite babies and thrown them into the river and killed them. The people uh, that God had promised to Abraham that they would be as numerous as the stars or the sand... They threw them innocent babies, generations, into the water as they drowned helplessly. Yes, there was a price that had to be paid. We don't sit idly by while injustice is perpetrated, especially against human beings or people groups. We don't do that. It's interesting to note that Moses, even in his Egyptian days, Why did he have to leave Egypt? Because he saw an injustice perpetrated against a Hebrew slave, and he killed him. We don't accept apathy in the face of evil, evil because God does not accept that. And even if they didn't participate in the heinous behavior that took place of murder and subjection, they are at least complacent and apathetic. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, falsely attributed to Edmund Burke. But there's a 
Uh, John Stuart Mill has a much better real quote that describes the situation I'm talking about. Let not anyone pacify his conscience by the delusion that he can do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion. Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. In our story, God would not let evil continue to triumph. He couldn't. He made a promise. Promise keeper, you finish what you begin. Citing an example, well, I mean, of course, the summary, the people needed to stand against this, and they did not. Rav Soloveitchik, he's a uh, very famous uh, family, but a, a, a famous rabbi. As a child in Russia who suffered from constant anti-Semitism, he asks, from whom did I suffer? When I ran home from those who wished to hit and humiliate me, from whom was I running? Not from the czar, but from the neighborhood bully. Without the support and cooperation, moving in back into Egypt, without the support and cooperation of the Egyptian people, Israel would not have had to have suffered on the level they did. And so, plagues of judgment were poured out on Egypt. Now, there are other examples in Jewish history. I mentioned Russia, but how about Nazi Germany? To apply John Stuart Mill's quote again, is it cruelty, cruelty that the German people were led through the death camps to see the piles and piles of bodies, dismembered babies, is that cruel that the United States made them do that when they liberated the camps? Is that cruel? No, it's the cost of apathy, complacency, and being complicit. It's not cruel. And I've spoken extensively about this. I won't dive deep into it again, but let's just, let's just make this real modern. October 7th, there's a cost for complacency. And people die. Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. But as I mentioned, there were two parts to the judgment. One, the past. The first nine plagues, I might say, fell into this category of, of retribution for the past, part one of the judgment. But I want to explain to you there was a way out. After all God had shown to Pharaoh, to the magicians, to the servants, and to the people, to remain defiant to God one more time would carry a very, very high cost. The present also required judgment, and they refused to get the message, to acknowledge God, to, to, to achieve purpose one, much less achieve purpose two, to let the people go. 
Remember, I opened this with all the places that God said, so Egypt will know that I am God. And so God, true to his word, has made himself incredibly known. Has he not? And the Lord over all natural phenomena, weather, sun, pharaohs, and some, some had acknowledged this. Within Egypt, some had acknowledged this. And now by this 10th plague, the worst of the worst, but I want you to listen to the presentation of the 10th plague. Now the Lord said to Moses, one more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will assuredly drive you out from here completely. Listen carefully. Speak now that the people hear that each man is to ask of his neighbor and each woman of her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. That's a part of the Abrahamic covenant as well, that they would be sent out with possessions. But the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Speak now so that the people hear. What people? Israel, of course, right? They needed to follow the instructions. They needed to know what to do. But I want you to listen to this. Speak now so that the people hear. Of course, Israel. But they were talking to their neighbors. They were talking to their neighbors. There's, there's something so big and so bad that's coming. Please give us the silver. They're like, okay, take it. Why? There's something really bad coming. Like, put, put blood on the door. You can be saved. Our God is a God of mercy. Remember what I taught you last week. God creates the cure before the wound. There was still an out. Having been through the judgment of the past, dead livestock now, boils, locusts, darkness, nothing compared to what was coming. There was a cure, mercy, escape from judgment, a covering. This took me to a strange place. You remember in Acts 2 when Shavuot happened and they were all amazed by what God had done, that everyone was speaking in different voices and they understood. And then Peter says to them, I'm telling you, this man you crucified, this was Yeshua. He was Lord and Master is what it's, Lord and Messiah. And what did they say? What must we do to be saved? The cure before the wound. He, they understood. Brothers, what shall we do? They recognized, they humbled themselves, accepted the sovereignty of God and the gift of mercy. And listen, one might argue, that's, that argument is bogus. Blood on the door? By the way, let's take a quick notice. Have you seen these flowers? What is that? Beautiful blood on the door and the angel of death passing over. Anyway, one might argue... The Egyptians couldn't put blood on the door. That was only for Israel. Well, I don't know. 
But let me explain to you that Egyptians, had they done that, it makes a particularly profound statement because in Egypt, the blood of a lamb, a lamb was considered a deity in Egyptian culture. This had like extremely symbolic importance for an Egyptian to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the door is basically saying, I give, I give in, I acknowledge you, save me. But even if that couldn't happen, they could have come indoors with an Israelite. And they probably would have been invited. I mean, we think later about the blood of Yeshua as a seal. It's not only for Israel. God is the God who saves and redeems and restores the world. So anyway, let me, let me wrap up here. In Egypt, the people who refused the offer suffered the consequence and the judgment of God because, as I said in last week's message, what we're dealing with here is a culture of complicity and conceit. And you know what? That concept is alive and well in our world today. More and more, actually, every day. Cultures of conceit which deny the existence and the power of the creator of the universe. It's dangerous. But let me say, our story has nothing to do with God's fairness. I've demonstrated in multiple ways how God gave everyone involved in this story chances, everyone, from the top down. And here's how the plagues end. Actually, there's much more to the story as we approach the sea, and there's many, many things that commentary and tradition teaches about these that I haven't even begun to touch. But this is how the plagues end. Egypt pressed the people strongly to send them out quickly from the land, for they said, we are all dead. They pressed the people of Israel strongly. Can you guess how that word connects the dots? Betechezak Mitzrayim al ha'am. Betechezak with strength. They pushed them out, but only when it was too late. Really, it's a story of triumph, of course, for God, for Israel. We celebrate it every year. We celebrate it every day, actually, in the prayers and especially on Shabbat in the liturgy. And it's a tragedy for Egypt that in some way could have been minimized, not prevented, but minimized. But my friends, that is not God's fault. And it's not about fairness or a mean God. It's about the people who refuse to acknowledge and serve him. So may we never be accused of complicity, complacency, or especially, worst of all, conceit. 
May God make our hearts strong, not to endure trouble, but to strengthen our faith and our service and our knowledge that in the words we're about to say as we conclude the Shabbat service and the Elenu, Hu Eloheinu, Ein Od. He is our God. There is none other. Chazak, chazak, venit chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for connecting with Shalom Macon. If you would like a deeper connection, please visit us at shalommacon.org. And if your connection with Shalom Macon has been meaningful and enriched your life, please consider partnering with us to accomplish greater things for the kingdom. Visit shalommacon.org give to make either a one-time contribution or set up recurring giving. And thank you for being a builder, not a bystander.